revised bill on strengthening punishment against online sexual crimes has gone into effect, and this will hand down five years in prison or a maximum penalty of 30 million won to those caught using hidden cameras to spy on women or distributing illegal footage taken by such devices. But is this enough to fight illegal filming? How important is international cooperation as well to root out these crimes? Melissa Alvarado, Ending Violence Against Women Specialist, Regional Office for Asia and the Pacific, joins us on the line from Bangkok. She was in Seoul early this month to take part in an international conference on combating digital sexual violence hosted by the Career Communication Standards Commission. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And there was a joint report published in 2016 by UN Women and the Korean Women's Development Institute that aimed to address the gap in legislation on sexual harassment in public places in the region generally, talking about Asia-Pacific here. It included interviews and field visits to Seoul, Jakarta, Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. What were the notable findings there? Well, what we find is that uh, sexual violence in public spaces, unfortunately, has for far too long been really sort of sidelined as a minor issue, when in fact, sexual harassment and sexual violence plays a big part in women's lives, women and girls' lives, and it's something that really has to be taken seriously by legislation, and so we have to also focus on looking at what are the things that make women unsafe, um, and it's not just you know, living in big cities, but it's really sort of an acceptance of violence against women, you know, and acceptance of, um, you know, masculinity that really controls women and, and a sense of sexual entitlement, unfortunately. And so we find that we did a review of programs that are addressing sexual violence and sexual harassment across the region, as you noted, and we found that you know, there's a number of interventions that, you know, local governments are taking and cities are taking, um, but they really have to be seeking a, a transformation around this acceptance of violence and the attitudes uh, towards violence against women. We really have to open up space to, to question that violence and to, and to challenge it. Um, it's not enough to just work on the infrastructure, for example. These are all cities, but they're also quite different cities, obviously representing different cultures? Were there still common threads that we could build a a connection with urbanization generally? That's true, yes. There is is certainly common threads around cities. Um, We see that, you know, one of the the problems related to sexual violence in large cities is related to inequality and related to power, unfortunately. There's a very common understanding that, that bears out in the research again and again uh, when we do research on violence against women globally, which says, look, this is really about power. Um, violence is not just about sex, it's really about power um, and an effort to control women and, and, and to let women know that you, know, you have a certain place in society and we want to keep you there. So this is important for us to understand that, yeah, the violence that happens in cities, um, it might be enabled by you know, different types of uh, lack of infrastructure or lack of government accountability, poor infrastructure, for example, and and maybe perhaps a poor inability to effectively uh, police and hold perpetrators accountable as well. So these things, you know, they they can happen when you've got, you know, a large mix of people in in an urban setting, but it's not disconnected from other forms of violence against women that that happen in the home as well. Mm. So there has to be sort of a a full-on approach to address violence against women and, and to allow people to question it 
and you know, unfortunately, there's there's, there's much too much of a uh, a willingness to look away. I think this is one thing that we've seen from the Me Too movement, right, globally, that it's been really revealed to us how many times survivors have wanted to reach out that felt like, you know, people were just willing to look away. And that happens by local governments as well. And so it's something that we have to, to really shine a light on and see how can we uh, support women to get to get help whenever they do speak out and whenever they do get help and, and, to, and, to, and to do away with this willingness of police and other forms of government services to look away uh, when it's reported to them. Unfortunately, it's far too common. How do we take these findings and this awareness and come up with practical countermeasures, uh, effective countermeasures, and region-specific policies? Well, I think the first thing uh, is, again, to really understand this issue from, like, from what, what's driving it. And, we, you know, in order to prevent something, we know that we have to be able to, to work from the root causes. And so, again, we, we see a very strong uh, driver related to gender inequality, um, you know, based, a basic belief that women and girls are somehow less than men and, men and boys and somehow less deserving of safety, you know, of, of being able to walk wherever they want to go, to live wherever they want to live with a sense of safety. Um, what we see in some cities that we, it's, that we uh, approached in this study was that governments are, are ready to take, to take uh, steps that are related to infrastructure. We might call that the hardware. But when it comes to actually dealing with the, the, the more difficult things, the patriarchal norms, which really position men in a higher position of power than, than women and girls, less of a, an understanding of that and less of a readiness to deal with it head on. And so that really has to be the first thing. We cannot only try to install better lights and better pathways and, and cameras that monitor, you know, people's movements. Um, we really have to be willing to, um, you know, take a look at what are we doing throughout our urban planning environment? You know, are there women involved? Are there women being part of these discussions? You know, uh, it's something that we see is far too common um, in the urban planning space. Um, is uh, something we call mantles, you know, the all-male panel, where, you know, not one woman is, uh, is located to, to sit on a, a panel, uh, you know, that is influencing the conversation, that is influencing decision-makers about what should be happening in urban spaces. And so very important that we center women um, at the discussion around urban planning and, you know, ask the right questions about what might make an, a space unsafe, you know, to really put women at the center helps us understand what we can all do to be, to be safer. And we've seen very good outcomes uh, from approaches that do, you know, more effectively put women in the center and then also try to challenge some of the gender inequality that exists, you know, unfortunately within some of the duty bearers, some of the service providers that really should, you know, be supporting a safer environment from, you know, sort of bus conductors to police officers, for example. So we really have to be putting women, um, you know, into that conversation and, and also, you know, having conversations that really look at what, what, what's driving violence and, and, and what can we do differently to sort of shift, shift the balance related to, to power in our society. How does the online dimension, though, change things? Because if you're trying to tackle this at city level, obviously technology doesn't respect city barriers or boundaries, does it? That's true. Um, and, yes, the online sexual exploitation that's happening right now is, is a vast and dark and really horrifying environment. Um, it's something that we should all understand better, I think. 
because so much uh, online sexual exploitation is happening. And yes, it's true that the legislation has not quite caught up in many places to the actual lived experiences of women and people who have experienced sexual exploitation and, and abuse. Um, so, you know, it's very important for our online communities to be to be able better able to control, police, uh, monitor, you know, report. Uh, we do talk. We we are in conversation with a number of sort of online social media companies, for example, and you know they're starting to use things like like on, like artificial intelligence more to be able to locate and address and you know remove content that might be, for example, you know soliciting something that could be soliciting sex or soliciting you know something that is sexually exploitative. Um, so that's promising. However. In a lot of countries in this region, the legislation has not quite caught up with the problem. And, of course, that creates space for, you know, for, for, for activity that is dangerous and, and that can cross borders and, and, and cross international boundaries. Um, and so our legislation does have to be more modern um, and, and better able to address it. But I think that it's important that we understand that what's happening online is a reflection of what's happening offline. And so, you know, again and again, we're reminded that different types of violence against women are all connected. And so, you know, we have to understand that violence that happens at work, um, the sexual harassment and sexual violence that happens there is connected to what happens on the street, is connected to what happens in schools and universities and, and homes. And so we really have to be able to address, you know, where does the sexual entitlement come from? Um, you know, how do we support our young people to have attitudes towards sex that are consensual, that are respectful, um, you know, we really have to look at where does this, you know, and, and I have to point out that, you know, unfortunately it's a, it's, it's a commonly male sense of sexual entitlement that mm-hmm. is linked with various forms of, of sexual violence. And so, you know, we have to be questioning, where does this come from? Where, where are men and boys learning this? And how do we sort of reverse engineer, you know, this approach to women, this approach to sex, this approach to sexual behavior online that, that is exploited and abusive. And, of course, it's not only women and girls that are experiencing, um, you know, sexual violence and exploitation online, but there's large, there's large numbers there. Um, and so, yes, we have to be willing to, to talk about sex, talk about sex openly with our young people, with our, even with our children, because, unfortunately, we've done research which shows us that rape starts very, very young, even uh, younger than 15 years of age often. And, and that's really scary. So we have to be opening up these conversations with children and young people, boys and girls, um, in order to try, to try to eradicate the problem. So we need to sort of take a, a multi-pronged approach. We have to be thinking about prevention in the longer-term view, but we also have to be thinking about, about justice and accountability and, and addressing the impunity that exists very often. Melissa Alvarado, we're out of time. Um, thank you very much for joining us uh, for uh, your position with UN Women and good luck with your efforts. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, the pleasure's ours. And listening to uh, Melissa Alvarado, that makes me think of the importance of peer accountability as well. It's sometimes difficult to hear that message from governments and, and officials, especially if people are already embedded with their attitudes. Pound of sharp 1013 for 51 per message if you'd like to share your advice or views.